Hello and welcome to the Microbiome Medics podcast. I'm Dr. Siobhan McCormack. And I'm Dr. Sheena Fraser, and we're your co-hosts. We are both GPs and lifestyle medics with a shared passion for microbiome science. And we have spent the last five years deep diving into the world of the gut microbiome. We've been analyzing the evidence, appraising the studies, and speaking to the experts and writing the Gut Microbiome for Clinicians e-learning course for the BSLM Learning Academy. We have discovered that the gut and other human microbiomes are pivotal to every aspect of your health and physiology, and the pillars of lifestyle medicine hold the key. So in these Microbiomedic podcasts, we'll be covering the basics, bringing you the latest research and talking to the experts on all matters microbiome. We'll be translating the evidence and packaging it into actionable, bite-sized chunks so that you could harness the power of the microbiome to improve your own health and that of your patients. Hello, I am Dr. Siobhan McCormack, and this is Microbiome Medics Podcast. In today's episode, Dr. Sheena Fraser and I will be discussing the impact of antibiotics on the gut microbiome. The gut microbiome usually refers to the trillions of microbes residing in your colon. Most of these are bacteria. Now, although Sheena and I seem to hark on all the time about the benefits of these resident microbes, a small proportion of these bacteria are potentially pathogenic, by which I mean they're bacteria that could cause disease in humans. Now, of course, pathogenic bacteria can also come from your environment, in your food or air particles. And just to put it in context, it's been estimated that about 7% of all known bacteria could be pathogenic to humans, given the right conditions. Fortunately, we've got medicines called antibiotics, which are designed to inhibit or destroy bacteria. And antibiotics are widely considered to be the greatest medical breakthrough of the 20th century. However, the overuse of antibiotics, not only in medicine, but also in farming and agriculture, has led to the rapid rise of antimicrobial resistance. And it seems that the antibiotic pipeline is running dry and we're facing the possibility of a post-antibiotic era. In 2019, it was estimated about 1.2 million deaths were directly attributed to antimicrobial resistance, and this number's predicted to rise to 10 million in 2050. So this is not the only issue. Antibiotics don't just target pathogens, they wipe out beneficial microbes too. Now, to help us unpick this complex topic, Sheena and I are delighted to welcome microbiome scientist and registrar in microbiology and infectious diseases, Dr. Anastasia Theodosio. Now, Dr. Theodosio is passionate about microbiome science, in particular early life microbiomes, and the impact of antibiotics on the gut microbiome. Now, Tash and her colleagues have recently published a paper introducing the concept of microbiotoxicity, a term they've created to describe and predict the likely impact of antibiotics on the microbiome. Now, Tash has recently relocated to Glasgow and is presently sitting next to my co-host, Sheena, as they live near each other. Hi, Sheena. Hi, Tash. How's it going? Hi, Shiv. Uh, we're good, thank you. Um, it's really good to be here and I'm really delighted to welcome Tash to the podcast. Um, we're both in Glasgow um, and I'm really excited because um, I've got another fellow bugs-obsessed medic who lives really close to me, so I'm delighted with that. Hi, Tash. Hi, Bo. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast today. Really excited to be here. No problem. Right. Well, let's kick off. Um, Tash, I wanted to just ask you a few questions about how you got into microbiome science and, and really just give us a little summary of, of your research to date and what you've been up to. 
Yeah, so I've um, always been really interested in pregnancy and early life. Um, we talk a lot in healthcare about the first 1,000 days of life, so from conception until a child is two years, because we know that what happens in those first two years has a disproportionate effect um, on a person's health, potentially all the way through throughout life and into adulthood. Um, but then I fell in love with microbiology um, and went off in that direction, and it all kind of came full circle when I first read about the microbiome and realize that it is this crucial health determinant in early life, and yet there's so much we don't know. Um, and that's when I got a little bit obsessed. That was about six years ago, um, and I've been kind of hooked ever since, and I'm very much planning to spend the rest of my life as a clinical academic researching it and, and trying to bring uh, microbiome science into clinical practice. Um, and then you asked about some of my research. So uh, my PhD at the moment is the world's first respiratory human challenge study in pregnant women. So what this means is we give pregnant women uh, nose drops that contain a harmless bacteria. And the reason we do this is to study A, how it changes the woman's microbiome, but more importantly, to really look um, at and model how bacteria moves from the nose and throat of the mum to the baby. And we do this because we know that the balance of bacteria in the baby's nose and throat is linked to chest infections and meningitis, which globally are amongst the biggest uh, killers in this in this uh, early life period. And so we're trying to understand that so that we can eventually modify the microbiome in babies to sit alongside vaccinations as antibiotics as really another strategy for, for preventing infections in early life. Excellent. That sounds really interesting. And, and can you just tell us um, a little bit about what you've found so far in that? Um, so it's it's actually incredibly fascinating. So when we gave the, the bacteria to the pregnant women, they became colonized, which meant that the bacteria was happily living in the nose and throat of the mums. But then when we studied the babies, we found that lots of other bacteria that you would expect to transmit from mum to baby was being transmitted. But our bacteria didn't. And that's really interesting because it challenges this idea that the baby is sort of this blank canvas just waiting to pick up bacteria from the mother and instead suggests that something really much more dynamic and orchestrated is going on, that just a bacteria being there isn't enough to cause the baby to pick it up, but that it really has to be more of a, a choreographed dance involving the mother, the baby, the immune system and all the other bacteria that's nearby. So really interesting. That is really interesting. Um, so there's obviously other factors involved as to why that microbe might sort of take up residency in your nose. It obviously has to have the right conditions. And these microbes that you were using, were these normal colonizers of the nose in, in other individuals or were they... Um, microbes that perhaps weren't so used to that environment? Or? So it's a bacteria called Neisseria lactamica. Um, you might know Neisseria meningitidis, which is the bacteria that causes meningitis. Neisseria lactamica is its harmless cousin, so mm. it doesn't cause any infection. And what's fascinating about it is that it's incredibly common um, at about the ages of kind of two till five, when most children will have it living in the nose and throat. And mm. we think that's a big part of the reason why children in that age group don't actually get meningitis very often. Mm. You get meningitis very early in life, and then it peaks again in the sort of teenage years. Yeah. So that was our motivation for using that bacteria, because we thought if we could get that into the baby before mm -hmm. you can vaccinate them, that it would provide this protection in that really early high-risk period. 
interesting. Um, but that suggests that it wasn't necessarily adapted to live in a, in a newborn. Um, so we're, mm-hmm. we're unpicking it at the moment. We're looking at the, the baby's immune system, the mum's immune system, the breast milk. There's a lot still going on. So Tash, can I just uh, butt in there? Because it's a, a really interesting study, but I was also just considering how difficult it must be to get studies um, agreed when you're sort of talking about pregnant women and neonates. And can you talk a bit about that? I mean, there can't be that many studies in this area. No. So, so yeah, so we are the first one of its kind. So the first one that was done in pregnancy. It's actually something I feel really passionately about. If you go back sort of um, to the late 20th century, there was this big move against doing any research in pregnant women um, because they because there were a few high profile, really sad kind of disasters, um, things like thalidomide and DES, where um, drugs that were used in pregnant women resulted in, in really horrendous um, uh, malformations in the, in the, in the babies. Mm. But it's actually really interesting. So that moved science away from doing any research in pregnant women. But as a result, we've got all the medication we use, by and large, hasn't really been tested in pregnant women. Mm-hmm. And I guess if you flip that on its head, you know, is that protecting women or is that blocking off this whole sector of society from having medications tested for for their use? Um, and I think I'm a big advocate for working with um, patients in the public, um, explaining. I mean, at the end of the day, pregnant women are by and large consenting adults and the fact that they were classed as a vulnerable population not able to consent to research for decades is a bit of a travesty um so yes yeah, so it, it was a, it was a really awe-inspiring journey because these women were so engaged with the study and so open to learning and participating so yeah really really grateful to them oh it sounds amazing um if i can just uh just move tax slightly Um, from those brilliant studies, which I'd love to discuss more. But if we um, just talking about this uh, antibiotic uh, microbial resistance issue that the World Health Organization now say is one of the top 10 threats to human health, just for those listeners who are curious and wondering what exactly is antimicrobial resistance and and why can't we just make new antibiotics? What's the problem? So I guess we need to think, um, we kind of focus always on, on humans, and we need to remember that antibiotics and antimicrobial resistance predates humans. Um, so bacteria are adapted to the world, often living in the soil, and they have to compete with each other. They have to compete with, with fungi. And so they developed antibiotic resistance to, to sort of compete in those natural environments. Then we came along and we introduced chemical antibiotics as, as medications. And every time you expose bacteria to to drugs like antibiotics, you sort of select for those um, resistant genes. So they already had them, you know, for millennia, but now we're starting to, to bring them to the fore because of the antibiotics that we use. And so what that means is when you give someone antibiotics, it'll kill all the bacteria that are susceptible and create beautiful conditions for the resistant bacteria to thrive. And so then the person who took antibiotics can develop a resistant infection, but also that bacteria can then spread to other people. So you can end up with infections that are resistant to antibiotics in people who've never even had antibiotics. I think sometimes patients can misunderstand this and think that, you know, they've become resistant to antibiotics, but it's not them, it's it's the bacteria. And that's what makes it such a, a global health problem because these bacteria can spread. 
Um, as you say, the goalposts are shifting because the more antimicrobial resistance we have, the more we're having to develop these broader spectrum antibiotics that are tailored to treating really resistant infections. And so that leads to more resistance. So we're kind of shifting the goalposts. And I think there's never been a more important time to practice really good antibiotic stewardship um, because things could get an awful lot worse. So you've coined this term microbiotoxicity and you've written a paper on this. Um, so can you tell us more about how um, antibiotics impact on the, the microbiomes um, and, and really why you thought that it was quite important to, to coin this term and actually seek some kind of measurement of this? Because that's really, really interesting. The, the conversation tends to focus on antimicrobial resistance, but I like to think of that as one of many bystander effects that you have to deal with when you use antibiotics. And again, I just need to say, I'm a microbiologist. I think antibiotics are amazing. Um, I think when someone has a severe infection, there is nothing in the world as satisfying as, as giving someone a course of, of antibiotics when they're septic and seeing them bounce back to life. Um, so in the right circumstances, they are fantastic. But um, they have these bystander effects, and these range with the type of antibiotic using and the type of patient you're giving it to. And resistance is just one aspect. The broader picture is what antibiotics are doing to the microbiome. And whether we like it or not, they are changing the microbiome each and every time we use antibiotics. So what I want to do here is take a step back, because I think to understand microbiotoxicity, we have to start with thinking about the role of the microbiome. And I find it really helpful to think of it as a human organ system in its own right. I think it does a lot of what you expect an organ like your liver or your kidney to do. So it, it follows a predictable development from, you know, from babies through to adulthood. It performs vital physiological functions like making vitamins, hormones, neurotransmitters. And I think for me, most importantly, it, it's critical in immune development. So if you then take antibiotics and you disrupt that, that sort of network, that organ, you are potentially damaging it. And doctors are really good at already thinking in these terms. So we, we say, you know, if a medication damages the kidneys, we call it nephrotoxic. If a medication damages the liver, we call it hepatotoxic. And that doesn't mean that we don't ever use those drugs. It just means that we think about that when we prescribe those drugs. And I don't think it should be any different for antibiotics, you know? So it might mean if you had someone who has, um, you know, damaged kidneys, you might have a higher threshold for using one of those drugs that could damage them further. Mm -hmm. um, Whereas I think with antibiotics, we sometimes, you'll hear people saying, oh, well, we'll just give them to be on the safe side. Mm -hmm. And I'm not criticizing that. I'm just saying that maybe we need to stop. And in the same way that we already do with all the other medications we prescribe, think about some of these bystander effects. Um, I guess, is it helpful if I go through what kind of bystander effects mm, I mean? Yeah, please do. So I guess when we think about, um, you know, as Shiv was saying, the, the gut is home to, you know, trillions of microbes. And antibiotics won't just kill the, the pathogens, the bad guys. They'll also kill some of those um, harmless ones, potentially even, you know, essential ones. And you get two things happening very quickly. So you reduce the overall number of bacteria, what we call the biomass. And you also reduce the number, the types of bacteria, the number of different types of bacteria, what we call diversity. And because antibiotic, because the microbiome rather is a network, um, antibiotics can actually kill a lot more than just the bugs they're targeting. Because just say they target certain bacteria, but those bacteria 
are critical for the survival of other bacteria, you could actually end up knocking out several players in a network, which means you then shift the makeup of the microbiome. And if that makeup is, you know, regulating vitamins and hormones and neurotransmitters, I think it's reasonable to sort of put that in context and understand that you could be affecting the function of your of that organ. And there's, why does this matter? Because there's increasing evidence that this type of microbiome disruption is linked to downstream ill health. So diseases like diabetes, asthma, inflammatory bowel disease, obesity, even cancer are becoming increasingly linked with antibiotic-associated um, microbiome disruption. That's interesting. And also, it's not just antibiotics that can disrupt the microbiome. So other drugs can disrupt the microbiome as well. Do you think it's important to consider the antimicrobial effects of other drugs whilst you're looking at this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think especially when it's some of the most commonly prescribed drugs, so things like proton pump inhibitors, you know, things that change the acidity in the gut are known mm -hmm. to, to very much affect the microbial ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, things that we, we take in as part of our, our diet, so things like emulsifiers in processed food, I like to think of them as being basically fairy liquid for your gut. It just mm -hmm. kind of cleans the inside, um, which isn't what you want when you've got a dynamic ecosystem. Mm -hmm. um, I think Antibiotics are, are probably the biggest culprit in terms of what we prescribe, yeah, but yeah. you're absolutely right. They're not the only ones by any means. Yeah, and SSRIs. I mean, I, I was looking at a paper on SSRIs recently, and, and they can actually um, be very antibacterial to certain types of bacteria, I think streptococci and stuff and E. coli, which is interesting. And, and of course, that might be a beneficial effect if you've got too many of these organisms in your gut. Um, and of course, you know, from the antibiotic point of view, you're, you're giving that antibiotic to provide a beneficial effect. So you're trying to knock out certain microorganisms um, to improve the microbial structure there. But, but um, as you say, there's this fallout and there's this knock-on effect on the other resident population and, and the, the whole dynamics of that ecosystem can change. And, and then that provides a very different ecosystem and, and can take a little while. So how, I mean, how long would it take for a, a, an ecosystem to um, recover after an antibiotic, for example? So it's a complex question because it depends on the patient and it depends on the antibiotics. Um, so to kind of take a step back, part of why we published the paper on microbiotoxicity was to kind of create a framework so that people can think about these antibiotic mm -hmm. decisions in a really step-by-step -step way. So before you can answer that, you need to kind of think about who your patient is. So we know that if your patient is either a pregnant woman, a baby, an elderly patient, someone who's immunosuppressed, um, or someone with um, kind of high levels of inflammation, mm -hmm. those are all the people who are most at risk of micro, uh, microbiome uh, dysregulation with mm -hmm. antibiotics, so microbiotoxicity, basically. Um, so they might end up having a much longer and more pronounced uh, perturbation than sort of, you know, a healthy middle-aged adult. Mm -hmm. um, similarly, it depends on the antibiotics that you're using. So we go through in the paper um, how different types of antibiotics have a, a more marked microbiotoxic effect. So we think about the spectrum of activity, so the, the bacteria that the antibiotics target. Mm -hmm. um, so broader spectrum 
is a bigger is it, it tends to be a bigger problem than narrow spectrum. But even with narrow spectrum antibiotics, it also depends what you're knocking out. So antibiotics that target gram negative rather than gram positive bacteria mm -hmm. and antibiotics that target your gut anaerobes um, are more of a concern. So things that I think a lot of doctors think of as being relatively innocuous antibiotics, things like metronidazole for anaerobic cover, mm -hmm. are actually you know, making a beeline for some of the most protective bacteria in your gut. Um, the other things are the duration. So, you know, it might be, it might sort of seem intuitive that longer courses, uh, multiple courses and multiple different drugs in a combination are all going to be uh, more harmful to the, to the microbiome. Um, so in terms of your original question, which is how long, you know, the, the perturbation can be anything from a couple of weeks, but then there's been stu studies where, you know, it's in excess of a year later And that's just the measurable microbiome effect. What we don't know is the downstream effect that that's having in health. Because, for example, um, in, in the newborn, the microbiome is actively training the immune system. So even if the microbiome signal goes back to normal, say, a few months later, the, the sort of thresholds of the baby's immune system may have changed in a way that could be permanent for years um, and might and that might be what's driving some of the signal that we see in terms of increased rates of asthma, increased rates of diabetes, it, it, because you've fundamentally shifted um, that developmental process. That's right. And, and antibiotics before the first year of life is a considerable risk factor for autoimmune conditions and allergies and even chronic diseases. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's interesting. And as you say, what that real impact, I think that's yet to be fully discovered, you know, how that um, really impacts upon the gut microbiota and the immune system development in the, in the newborn. Um, so how would you like a clinician to use your term microbiotoxicity in clinical practice? So again, I, I need to sort of make it really clear that this isn't about blaming clinicians or sort of putting all the responsibility on the clinician to be somehow simultaneously responsible for the global antimicrobial resistance crisis and also the bystander effect in their individual patient. Because every doctor is really nervous about missing severe infection, about patients getting worse, especially, you know, pregnant women and, and babies who are very vulnerable um, to severe infection. So it's not about placing blame. It's about creating a framework where you can help them balance up, um, you know, the risks and the benefits um, so that they can make a more informed decision. It also, I, I think there's something to say about reframing the narrative. You know, as a, as a microbiologist, a lot of stewardship discussions are understandably about antimicrobial resistance. But I think a frontline prescriber can, might feel... A little bit like that narrative is at odds with the patient in front of them. You know, it's quite hard when you have a potentially sick patient in front of you to be worrying about the rates of, you know, carbapenemase resistance in India um, when there's someone in front of you. And it's equally very hard for patients. Um, you know, if you have a mum who, who's worried about her child, it's very difficult to expect her to put, you know, the global resistance problem in front of the health of her own child. So I think microbiotoxicity is a really helpful way of reframing the conversation so that it's the risks and benefits to your own patient, not yeah. a global problem. Um, it also helps because you can then use that framework to actually make a, a shared decision with the patient. Yeah. So, you know, if you have someone who's quite nervous, maybe quite risk averse, and they see antibiotics as being a risk-free just-in-case strategy, you mm -hmm. can actually use it to say, well, actually, there are some downsides of antibiotics to you personally, mm -hmm. and this is how we can navigate that. Um, 
I hope it's okay to, to sort of say the next point, but it could also be quite a helpful strategy for calling out an appropriately challenging um, inappropriate practice around you. So yeah. I know we've probably all come across junior doctor, you know, I get calls where, it's, you know, my, my consultant doesn't like it when the CRP goes above 50, so we're going to start some antibiotics. And I think in those situations, it can be really tricky because you don't want to, you know, be seen to be challenging another colleague, but this gives you a framework that's evidence-based and helps you to have those difficult conversations. And it creates, and it creates permission for, for patients to initiate that, you know, it gives them permission. I think having a term for it, just like with the surviving sepsis campaign, where we encourage the public to ask, could this be sepsis? Mm. And it normalized that so that it didn't feel like you were challenging the doctor. It just felt like you were able, it's empowering. Yeah. I think the same thing, it, it gives patients the, the space to say, well, hold on, is this good for my microbiome? What can I yeah, do yeah, for yeah. my microbiome? Yeah, yeah. Well, I would really encourage anybody who's interested and, and obviously a clinician to, to have a wee look at this paper um, that's in our reference section for the podcast. And, you know, it, it's got a really helpful um, diagram which talks you through the framework um, that you would apply to each patient, um, which will make you understand, you know, the risk um, benefit um, ratio for each individual um, when you're considering antibiotic use. So I'm um, really, really helpful. Um, and it's certainly something I'll be using in clinical practice. So thanks for that. Just, I think it's a really important point about this term, which is your term, Tash. Could we use it for other drugs like PPIs? Could we use it for emulsifiers and artificial sweeteners that we know are toxic to certain gut microbiota? So, I mean, we didn't really cover those in in the in the paper, but it was very much a sort of initial discussion. Um, I think it would be entirely appropriate to think about that beyond the uh, beyond antibiotics. And as I say, antibiotics are one aspect of of an inter a group of different things that we're doing to the microbiome in you know in the way that we live our lives. Um, so, yeah, I think that'd be entirely appropriate. Um, can I just um, ask you, because um, you've done all this research the last few years and you're going to be returning to clinical practice here in Glasgow mm -hmm. um, in infectious diseases. Yeah. Um, fantastic. Um, so how would you like the physicians around you to be using microbiome science? I mean, infectious diseases is, a, is an area where I'd have thought microbiome science would take very readily to. Um, but how do you see your colleagues using microbiome science day to day? Um, what would you like to see um, in terms of changes to the current clinical system? So I think for me, it's about encouraging a fundamental change in mindset. Um, so it, it might seem a stretch, but I really like to encourage people to view every person, so every patient, ourselves, as a human microbial hybrid. You know, we have at least as many bacterial cells as human cells. We have 10 times as many bacterial genes as human genes. Um, we're these little kind of ecosystems. And I think when you start thinking about humans that way, and you take on board that the microbiome is an organ system in its own right, something follows on from that. It's that the microbiome therefore becomes part of your duty of care to your patient. And as soon as you recognize that, it, it sort of makes you change how you, how you interact with patients. Because if it's part of your duty of care to them, you can't just ignore it. You know, phrases like, oh, we'll just do it to be on the safe side don't actually make sense anymore. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's the biggest thing is, is that mindset. And, and it definitely ex extends beyond antibiotics. And I think 
you know, it, it's important throughout the life course, but I think where I'm most passionate about it is in the first thousand days of life. And I would like to see all clinicians kind of be maybe more active guardians in that period. Um, so I think, you know, we know that the microbiome plays this critical role in immunological development in early life. And there's probably three, the three biggest modifiable disruptors in that period that the evidence says are the most important are C-sections, um, antibiotics, and formula. All three of those, you know, I'm not vilifying them, all three of them are life-saving in the right circumstances. Um, and I'm definitely not about putting guilt on mothers. Um, I'm a mother who had a C-section, and I know firsthand how difficult it is to breastfeed, especially because there is often lack of support for new mothers. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a big part of why the UK has one of the lowest breastfeeding rates on the planet. So this is not about guilting anybody's, you know, mothering decisions. It's about shaking up clinicians and saying, hold on, this is important to lifelong health. So therefore, it's our responsibility to know about it. So mm -hmm. what I'd want every listener right now who's a clinician is to think, do I know enough about this topic? And if I don't, do I know who in my institution does so that I can sign point, women, you know, sign point the women to? Um, would I know where to get accurate, tailored prescribing advice for pregnant and breastfeeding women? Would I know what to do if a, if a woman was struggling with breastfeeding? Because otherwise, you end up compartmentalizing that as if it's not relevant to the patient in front of you. And I've seen people give, you know, prescribing advice that ends up meaning that a woman never breastfeeds again. You know, I've, I've, mm -hmm. had, I've had doctors call me saying, oh, well, I told her not to breastfeed for a week. And they probably didn't realize at the time, it's probably a very well-meaning thing, mm. but they might not have realized that that advice was the end of that lady's breastfeeding journey. Yeah. So again, I'm, I'm not trying to criticize clinicians. I just want us to all work together so that we can support people during this critical period of life. That's right. And and there's so much work to be done in this field. And And I think, you know, there's an awful lot of people who are very, very passionate about this, but there's equally an awful lot of people that just don't know anything about the impact of breastfeeding um, and uh, and natural birth on the microbiota. And as you say, you know, the trends are that more people are opting um, for C-sections. Um, the NICE guideline says that they are able to opt for, the, for that now. Um, and they're opting for that really without any discussion about the impact of, uh, you know, that lack of gut microbial transfer to the infant at a critical stage in their development. And, you know, it's not the patient's fault because they, they're never told about this. Yeah, so, you know, absolutely. again, you know, why are these, these discussions should be happening um, in clinical practice? And, and it's very difficult for patients to make informed decisions about things without knowing all the full facts. Um, so I think that's a really important point to make. Um, and and certainly, you know, something that um, Siobhan and I are very um, passionate about um, is, you know, the impact of that early life and um, all those early life choices um, on the microbiome development and how important it is to get that bit right. Yeah, I'm just um, sort of blown away by this really radical idea. And I guess it's the direction of travel we've been going in, Sheena, this idea of duty of care to the whole abiant. So it's this combination of, you know, your cells and your your microbiota or various human microbiomes that live in and on you. And it's a pretty kind of radical idea. Um, and I noticed in your paper, a very striking sentence 
first do no harm, which is kind of etched in every medic's, uh, you know, brain from from uh, from their training. And then you say microbes and all. Do you want to kind of unpick that a bit and what your thoughts were when you wrote that? Because it's a very, um, you know, interesting statement. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I guess it, it, for me, it follows on from this idea that it the more we learn about it, the more we realize that the microbiome is is so active in health. And so if it's taking that much of a, a role in health, I can't really see how it is separate to the human host. So for me, you, I don't really feel like you can protect the patient with, you know, and do no harm to the patient without taking that into account. I was maybe trying to be a little bit provocative as well, but I guess, you know, we're having this conversation. So that's yeah. probably a good thing. <laughs> uh, no, it's wonderful. I mean, it's really what we're seeing with you, though. I mean, I don't know how many people like you there are working in the health service. So you're a doctor working with patients at the coalface on the ward who's also doing microbiome research. I mean, you must be uh, unusual. And um, I mean, what do your colleagues think of you? And can you give the listeners and, and us really a flavour of what being a researcher looks like in real life? I mean, we we constantly talk about all this microbiome research, but can you give us a bit of an insight into what it's like and how, what you know, the process of getting research grants and how, what it looks like in real life. So I'm, I'm really lucky that I am um, surrounded by incredibly inspiring clinical academics. Um, many of them are either pediatricians, microbiologists, infectious diseases, doctors. So I'm definitely not alone. Um, and I'm very much at the beginning of my, of my research journey in awe of some of my, my, my supervisors um, that I've had the, the pleasure to work with. Um, it's also a massive privilege. I mean, I get paid to learn and ask questions and then get to think about how to use that in clinical practice. So I, I love my job, but you are really right that um, that sort of applying for grants and that can be tricky. Um, I guess being aware of that is is helpful because I think maybe the general public, even other doctors, has this idea that kind of science is is gospel, but actually the questions we ask are really influenced by by funding decisions. You know, funders will fund what is going to be impactful. Sometimes that means what's going to change clinical practice, but more often than not, it means what's going to get published and cited in good journals. Um, so, so the types of questions that you ask and the type of science that gets done is really dependent on, on you know, those types of considerations. Um, I guess having spent the last few years trying to get to grips with the microbiome science, uh, there's a few things I, I think are really useful for the audience to, to take on board, you know, and that's to do with what types of evidence do we have about the microbiome and what types of evidence do we need in order to be able to justify changing clinical practice. Um, and I guess it'll also help because microbiome science sometimes gets some criticisms levied at it and it'll maybe help us, you know, how do we appropriately respond to those. Um, I guess one of the things is that comes up is that a lot of microbiome science is observational, you know, and what that means is you look at the microbiome, you look at the health outcomes, you find an association, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, the one caused the other. Um, so you might find that, you know, bus accidents are more likely to happen on a particular route on a Tuesday. So do Tuesdays cause bus accidents? Well, no, of course not. It's because the bus route is on a Tuesday, you know, so, so trying to get the, 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 the direction of causality right can be tricky. 
But I think what I'd say to that is we shouldn't shy away from that as if it's somehow like an aha moment proving the microbiome science is rubbish, because actually we've changed a lot of practice historically on the basis of really, you know, important observational data. Mm -hmm. I mean, we never randomized anyone to smoking before realizing that it's, you know, one of the, the biggest public health culprits out there. Um, so I don't think we should be ashamed of the fact that a lot of the science is observational. Um, there is a lot of really important interventional animal data, which I think is really compelling because it does suggest that causality and it does suggest mechanisms. So what I mean by those is there's a lot of different studies using, um, you know, germ-free mice who don't have a microbiome and you change um, them in some way. So you give them, say, antibiotics um, and then you take the, uh, oh, so sorry, I'm getting that. I'm causing confusion here. So you take an ordinary mouse, give it some antibiotics, change the microbiome, and then you take that microbiome, so the poo basically, and you put it into a germ-free mouse that doesn't have a microbiome. And what you see is that even though the poo itself has no antibiotics in it, mm -hmm. the, the, the microbiome changes that mouse. So, and there's lots of different models that they've looked at. You know, some make the, the mouse gain weight, some make the mouse have what looks quite a lot like inflammatory bowel disease, but then it goes even further. When you then fix the microbiome, you fix the condition that the mouse has. So what you're showing is it's not the antibiotics themselves, it's what the antibiotics were doing to the gut microbiome because you can transmit that from, from mouse to mouse and you can make it better just by fixing the microbiome. So although we're not mice, I find that really compelling. Um, and it also has helped because there's sort of cellular studies and mouse studies where they've suggested mechanisms. So a lot of this is pointing towards inflammation as being the underlying mechanism. So the antibiotics change the community, the community shifts towards a more pro-inflammatory um, microbial community, and that then leads to downstream um, health problems that in themselves have an inflammatory basis. So things like inflammatory bowel disease, cancers, all of these are, are basically dysregulated inflammation. And when you look at it that way, it makes a lot of sense that it's particularly damaging in early life when the microbiome is training the immune system. Um, sorry, I'm, I, could, I could go on for ages, but I, I suppose the other thing I'd say is that although we're not mice, there is actually some really good interventional human research. So but by which I mean not just observing things, but, but you know, changing something and then measuring the effect on, an, uh, on the microbiome and on our health. I guess like with any field of study, that can sometimes get diluted with, you know, when you try to lump the really good science in with potentially some of the some of the less good science. Mm. And we are going through an annoying trend where people seem to be doing what are called meta-analyses, where you group together all the evidence in ways that aren't necessarily appropriate. And what I'd say to that is, you know, if you ask the wrong question, you won't get a very helpful answer. And it's like, you know, so people will ask me things like, do probiotics work? And I'd say, well, that's a silly question. It's like asking, does chemotherapy work for all cancers? Well, no, you have to ask, you know, what chemotherapy do you mean? What cancer do you mean? If you did a meta-analysis on every chemotherapy for every cancer, the answer would not be very helpful, you know? So I think we need to be honest about the limitations of, of the evidence. We need to celebrate some of the good science that's being done. And we shouldn't be feeling like we have to apologize for for the fact that there are still some unknowns. That makes my field really exciting. I mean, that's incredibly helpful, um, just the way you've put that. it's. I'm, I'm just thinking about people who are listening, 
um, because there will be all sorts of people out there. Some will never have had antibiotics. Some will be worried because they just had a course of antibiotics last week. Some will be concerned because they've had multiple courses of antibiotics or their kids just had an antibiotic. What what do we know about the effects of a course of antibiotics on, on a person and, and how quickly they'll bounce back or their gut microbiome will bounce back? So again, I think it, it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier in, in our chat is that it depends on the antibiotic, it depends on the person. You know, someone who's never had antibiotics before who takes you know, a a five-day course or a three-day course of antibiotics for a urine infection might be absolutely fine afterwards. Whereas someone who's having them for recurrent infections in the context of, you know, an immune deficiency would be in a potentially much worse off position. Um, So I think it depends, yeah, sort of on the individual. So I think there was a study on looking at healthy people. So if, for example, Tash, Sheena and I took a course, we're healthy, but we took a course of antibiotics we could all respond very differently. I might, my gut microbiome might recover very quickly. Sheena's might take some weeks, but possibly Tash, yours might take much longer than that. And I just wondered what advice we could give people to sort of help after they've had a course of antibiotics, if we're not sure about probiotics, what what advice could we offer people? Yeah, again, I mean, this goes back to our idea of, of what evidence there is And I think at the moment, um, it's important to say that none of the guidelines that we have um, recommend any particular interventions um, before or after antibiotics, you know, things like probiotics um, or or anything else. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean that there isn't a place for those. I mean, I think it's important to say that, you know, as a microbiologist, I, I stand by guidelines, but equally, I think we're kidding ourselves if we if we don't acknowledge that guidelines are necessarily incomplete at the moment no guideline that i'm aware of takes into account microbiome research i'm sure they will one day um but at the moment we are playing catch up and that's that's just the nature of of guidelines um the other thing to say is you know each one of these little interventions say a, a probiotic you know, if we take a step back to what it would take to get a a, a new drug marketed, you know, um, a new drug would have to go through testing in thousands of people. Several drugs would fail before they even get to that stage. So cumulatively, one new product might cost millions of pounds. And that investment is there if you have, on the other end of it, a marketable product that's going to make you at least millions of pounds. The trouble with a lot of these microbiome interventions, if I wanted to show that eating yogurt helps protect you from antibiotic effects, I am not going to get anyone to spend millions of pounds on that because yogurt exists and sells and isn't prescribed. So I can tell you with certainty, not, not only do some of the those trials not exist, they will never exist because the nature of research means that no one can justify doing a study to say, you know, does X polyphenol rich food protect against microbiotoxicity. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. You know, part of me thinks it would be an inappropriate use of money to spend literally millions of pounds showing that, you know, kale is good for the microbiome because you could spend that on developing a new cancer-saving drug. So all I'm saying is, is that when we think about the evidence, I don't think we should hold our breath for this data to come out. But instead, what we can do is be pragmatic. And so we can say, look, there's a lot of evidence that the microbiome may suffer when you take antibiotics. There are certain pretty low risk things that you can do in your own household that probably 
um, you know, aren't going to cause you any trouble and may help. That would be things like eating, you know, um, probiotic rich food. So things that are fermented, um, you know, aiming for a more whole food diet with, with less processing, less of these emulsifiers. I don't think that I can say that any one of those is evidence-based in the same way that a particular drug is, but equally, I'm not embarrassed to say that. That evidence will never be there, and that's the nature of the beast. Mm -hmm. um, what I will say is that a new wave of drugs and, or, or a new wave of sort of interventions is coming. So there's this concept of live biotherapeutic products. So these are living um, products made in a lab and tested as drugs. So I'm getting very technical here, but probiotics... Um, aren't test don't have to be tested as drugs. They are marketed as a food, um, which means they don't have to demonstrate a, um, a sort of clinical benefit before being marketed. Whereas a live biotherapeutic product is tested exactly as a drug, and is then marketed as a drug, which means we're back to being able to say that there potentially could be you know millions of pounds of profit to be made. And so there's a lot of investment at the moment. I think if I had any sense, I would probably quit my PhD and go into a startup making LBPs, but I don't think I will because I'm a sucker for punishment. Um, and actually, we've had our first um, FDA-approved LBP um, using the microbiome. So Rebiota is a, a sort of um, lab-produced equivalent to uh, fecal transplant for C. diff. Mm. And the, you know, the early results are really, really exciting. So, you know, I think these things are coming. They're definitely coming. Of course, the cynic in me will say, well, that's all very well because, you know, the pharmaceutical companies are are driving this research so that they can get the um, the benefits of selling these products um, at huge expense. Um, and we know that they'll probably charge a fortune for them. Um, but why should we advise patients to have those rather than a healthy whole food diet with lots of fermentation, fermented foods? Um, when we know that uh, clinical trials like the Sonnenberg's trial that we've we've um, put in our podcast before has shown, you know, radical changes to the gut microbiota just with fermented foods. Um, so uh, whilst I, I welcome more microbiome research, uh, there's a bit of me that's uh, slightly um, perturbed at the direction that we're going. Um, and and I feel kind of sad that it takes us away from a slightly more natural approach. Um, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the two can work hand in hand. Um, I get very excited about some of these new drugs and I have lots of kefir in my fridge. I think they, you know... I don't think they have to be in opposition to each other. The one is a really pragmatic lifestyle approach that can be a really important part of the kind of holistic advice that we offer to patients. And the other is an exciting new wave of, you know, is one other arrow in our, well, I don't know what the metaphor, in our sort of, I try to avoid the military us versus them metaphors when it comes to bacteria, because I think that's how we got into this mess in the first place. But it is nice that, there might be another um, tool to help balance and navigate infections mm. um, that embraces the microbiome rather than than fighting it. So I think that, I don't think the two need to oppose each other. But yeah, I, I do agree that we we probably don't um, place enough value on some of these um, lifestyle and dietary interventions. And I think you know the reason it goes back to to the idea of evidence and how you would be able to demonstrate enough if you don't have a marketable product. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Any final thoughts, Shiv? 
Yeah, I just think I really like the way that you've introduced this concept. And it's really, um, you know, inclusive because actually we all recognise this. Sheena, you'll know this. Tash, I'm sure you will. It's a Friday afternoon. A lovely patient sits down in front of you before the weekend with, you know, a bit of a fever, bit of a cough, nothing much else to find. They've got an important event. It's their daughter's wedding or they're worried about a spouse who's having chemotherapy next week or last time they had this five years ago, they ended up in hospital. Uh, You know, it's this really sort of complex area where you're not going to be able to see the patient for another few days and you're trying to do the best thing. Um, You have various issues. inaccurate tools or uh, you could give them a deferred script and um, this conversation I suppose is is or this word microbiotoxicity is one that would really help me sort of balance up the conversation um, and I know there will be tests available that hopefully will be helpful to help us decide uh, while the patient's sitting there the likelihood that it's a bacterial versus a viral infection and I think you've been doing a little bit of work into that um, Tash is that right? Um, it's something that I'm interested in. It's it's not something I can claim to have, ha- have done any work myself, but I guess the one, um, yeah, the, the keen-eyed, maybe either sceptic or just interested listener might sort of wonder, can we call, in the same way that we call nephrotoxicity, hepatotoxicity, those are, those are things that are readily measurable with simple blood tests. You know, you can measure liver function tests, you can measure kidney function tests. There is not a readily available blood test or biomarker for microbiome perturbation. Um, It it would involve sequencing. It would involve um, data analysis, which isn't practicable for a day-to-day basis. That doesn't mean those those biomarkers won't come and other clever people are are, are doing that type of research. Um, Again, I think this is a fluid conversation that is constantly evolving. Um, yeah, I would very much welcome biomarkers, and I'm open to the criticism at the moment that we that our biomarkers are not robust enough to roll this type of thing out in in mainstream medicine. However, I don't think that it's premature to be having these conversations because if we wait until we have biomarkers, we will have a lot more antibiotic resistance to reckon with. So we can change our behaviors in advance of of the biomarkers being perfect and we can just be mindful of our limitations that's that's just what good science is that's been an absolutely fascinating conversation and um i've learned a lot and um you know, I'm just delighted that you have come to Glasgow. You're going to be part of the medical team in my area. And I'm really delighted that this message is going to be spread, you know, throughout your department now that you're going to join here. Um, and, and I'm really um, excited that more and more medics, I think, will start to to understand this if we can keep spreading this this message. Um, so I'm delighted um, uh, that you were able to join us today and I'm delighted with your um, term microbiotoxicity because I think, again, this is something that us medics can run with now um, and we can certainly um, start taking this on board and we've now got a framework for understanding the impact on the gut, gut microbiome. And so that's wonderful for us. Um, so, yeah, please do have a look, uh, a look at the um, paper that um, Tash has done. It's really fantastic. Um, and if you are in that position now where you're interested in all of this knowledge base, but you still feel you don't know enough about um, microbiome science, then please consider 
gut microbiome for clinicians, the, the online course that's available via bslm.org.uk that Siobhan and I have written. Um, this will take you from a very base knowledge of microbiome science right the way through to the clinical application. So it will give you that knowledge that you need to be able to practice um, using microbiome science day, day to day. So thanks again, Tash. Um, thanks, Siobhan. Uh, lovely to chat to you both. Um, and that's all from us. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Microbiomedics Podcast. We really hope you enjoy the content and we welcome your feedback. We'd love to hear any suggestions you might have for microbiome topics that you'd like us to cover. And we also appreciate listeners' questions and we'll endeavour to answer them in the next podcast. So if you want to progress this learning further, look at the Gut Microbiome for Clinicians. It's an online course on bslm.org.uk, which will take you on a much deeper dive into the gut microbiome.